The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. You may be seated. And there are there is no kid zone today, but there will be at the 930 service. Thank you, Anna. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad y'all are here joining us in person and online. Um, you look wonderful in your masks. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here at Restoration. If I hadn't gotten a chance to meet you, um, or anyone else on staff hasn't gotten a chance to meet you, you can find us after the service. We love to know our people. Um, community is, is a really important part of who we are. We're glad you're here. So we're picking up in the, the sixth chapter of Esther. It's where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of what has led to this point, uh, but it's been quite the story. And one of the many distinct things about uh, the book of Esther is that uh, it never has the word God in it. It tells of these historical uh, details and things that have happened and uh, talks about how uh, the Jewish people uh, have lived in, as exiles in a land, and yet it never mentions the name God, never once. Literarily, the sixth 
chapter that we're going to look at this morning is the, uh, the hinge, uh, the point that things change. Because up to now, the first five chapters have been descending. And after this chapter, things will ascend. It's called a chiasm. So everything that up to now has been pretty bad. And after this, everything's going to change. So what changes the narrative? That's the question. What, what, why is it bad before and good after this chapter? And it's this. Because here we see in chapter 6 of Esther, we see uh, esteem from the highest place changes everything. That esteem from the highest place to the lowest place changes absolutely everything. And so maybe this morning you feel like you're in this godless story. That all these details that have been adding up only create chaos in your life, in your world, in, in your family, in your friends. There's no way God could be up to something because I can't understand what he's up to. It's a godless story. Uh, and yet, maybe this morning in that, that the place of esteem is something that you need. Maybe a little bit just to get through the day. Uh, maybe a whole entire renovation of how you view yourself and feel your self-worth. And so this morning, we'll look at the gift of esteem. We'll see how it's given and how uh, God is at work and how he gives lavishly of his love and esteem and honor, how he respects, how he validates you. And we'll see it in, in three main ways. We'll see um, uh, first finagling our own esteem, uh, second, the gift of receiving esteem. And third, being changed by esteem. And with that in mind, let's, let's go before the Lord and pray as we see the story of Esther. Lord, if you were to ask us who we are, we would have uh, a mixed bag of answers. Because sometimes it's hard to think we are worth anything. It's hard to think that we aren't defined by our greatest mistake. It's hard to think that we're not uh, defined by what others say of us. It's hard to think that we're not defined by how we have failed and how we keep failing. And yet you run towards us with a better word and a word that doesn't let us down. Christ, would you show us how you run to us this very day? We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, so we're in the sixth chapter of Esther. Um, maybe this is uh, your first week. Maybe you've missed a few weeks. Uh, so let's kind of catch up really quick to where we are. Uh, Esther is a um, Jew in Persia, and her parents die. And she's an orphan, and she's raised by a distant family member named Mordecai. So Mordecai and Esther are Jews living in the capital of Persia as exiles. That is, that's not their homeland. And in every capital, there's a government. And in every capital, there's a king. And here we find this king. And in the first and uh, second and third chapter, we see what this king is like. And this king is throwing a party for all his friends days long. And it says at the end of the party, he invites his wife uh, to come and show off your beauty to everyone. And she says no. And so this king, uh, who's a bit of a kind of a drunken snob, uh, deposes her, right? Strips her of her rights. And in chapter two, he then holds this uh, beauty contest to find a new queen 
for this recently deposed one and done away with one. And so he finds Esther, this beautiful woman. And Esther becomes the new queen. She's risen to power. And right after uh, this queen, uh, Esther has risen to power, this Jewish queen in the foreign land. Uh, Mordecai, her distant family member, hears about how, um, how two of the king's workers want to kill the king. And so he reports it and saves the king's life, and it's written in the history book, uh, which we see it come up again today. Uh, but from there, this uh, antagonist enters named Haman. And Haman, uh, just as Esther has risen to power, Haman wants to rise to power. And there's this, uh, there's this rule that says everyone in the land has to bow down uh, to Haman because he works for the king. People are bowing and people are bowing, and then um, it gets to Haman and Mordecai, and Mordecai, the Jew, does not bow down to Haman. What does Haman do? He's furious. He's indignant. He's, he's riled up, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? You've injured my pride so much, I'm going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill all of his people. And he goes to the king and presents this kind of um, uh, slanderous case against Mordecai and his people, and the king signs off on it, not even knowing that he's agreed to kill his new wife. And so we see here that then Mordecai goes to Esther and says, um, you were made to go before the king and, and uh, intercede for your people and make sure they don't die. And Esther boldly does so. And that's where we find ourselves. So, again, really bleak uh, things that have been happening. And this chapter begins by the king not being able to fall asleep, and he wants the history book to come in and be read to him because he loves to hear about himself. And so they're reading about how Mordecai, there's a story about Mordecai saving the king from an assassination plot, and the king says, what have we done to honor this person? And the people say nothing. And that's where we find ourselves. And first we see the, the finagling of our own esteem, and we see it in the person of Haman in chapter 6. And we see it in three kind of quick ways. We'll, we'll run through them. That Haman finagles his own esteem uh, as he murders. He murders to finagle esteem. So how does he do that? It says in uh, verse 4, it says this. The king asked, after he's heard the story about Mordecai, written from the book of history, it says, the king asked, who is in the court? It says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Mordecai wants to kill, sorry, Haman wants to kill Mordecai and kill all the Jews. And actually, Haman is so injured and his pride is so injured by Mordecai not bowing to him that he's made a 75-foot gallow with Mordecai's name on it. He is fixed on eliminating the person who has denied himself, who has not affirmed his self-perception. He has no other actions than to kill the people that do not affirm who and how he thinks of himself. In fact, he plans to murder, to finagle esteem, to, to, to wrongly and deviously obtain worth and value and affirmation. Now, for you and I, we may not have a 75-foot gallow. If you do have that, the HOA is called, the police are called, it's this, you know, it's, it's I'd be hard-pressed to find that in your yard. And yet, it's a tactic that we use the same. 
that when we have a self-perception of being so important, we will take anything or anyone that stands in our way of affirming that self-perception. That we long to know we are who we say we think we are. We murder to finagle esteem. In fact, if we're discounted, we'll discount someone. If we're demeaned, we'll demean them. If we are denied, we will deny others. So not just murder to finagle esteem, but there's the mirror to finagle esteem. In verse 5 and 6, uh, we see that um, the people say to the king, uh, it says, and the king's young men told him, Haman is, in the, is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Uh, do you get what he's saying here? He's, he's saying, how in the world could anyone be more important than me? We, um, when we want um, to know things about ourselves, we don't just sit there. Right? We don't just sit and kind of twiddle our thumbs. In fact, we actually make active, proactive steps. And we go to the mirror. We look at ourselves and we say things to ourselves. You may not actually go to a mirror, but you have this voice you can never escape in your own head that you talk to yourself. Haman here is saying to himself, how in the world could anyone be more honored than I am? I'm, I'm Haman. I'm, I'm the one that the king probably wants to delight to honor. So Haman then says this plan of, you should put your robe on him king, you should put him on a horse and have ride him around town. And, and even the, the highest official should walk the horse because even your highest official is a servant to the one that you delight to honor. Haman is making this plan uh, to totally treat himself well, to feel like he's valuable. In fact, he has this self-talk of saying, you are so important. Now, maybe some of us are like Haman, that we go to the mirror, that we go and, and listen to ourselves, and it's this inflating, self-congratulatory talk. It's this, this propaganda that says, you are so important. Oh, you are. Your company is so lucky to have you. Uh, your roommates, how could they live with anyone else but you? Your spouse has arrived because they get to wake up every day next to you. All right, we have these ways of saying to ourselves how important we are in affirming our own self-perception with our own voice. And yet at the same time, for some of us, it may be the exact opposite. That we look in the mirror or we hear our own voice and it says things of relentless criticism. And it says things like, how do you think you're worth anything? Why in the world do you think anyone could ever love you? If you looked different, maybe they could. If you accomplished more, you may be getting somewhere. The voice of criticism is endless at the same time. So we finagle esteem by either A, um, having this false congratulatory talk of inflation, or B, falsely condemn ourselves based off the tiniest observation, the mirror of uh, self 
finagling, of, of finding esteem for ourselves. And then last, um, there's the mirage of finagling esteem, right? We labor so much to receive the thing that we are pouring ourselves into to get. And at the end, it's not there. It's a mirage. It's, it's empty. At the end of the story, we, we know, it's not a spoiler alert, it was just read for us, that um, Haman makes his plan to honor himself, and then the king says to him, go do all of this to Mordecai, his enemy. And so Haman has to go and put more, the robe on Mordecai, which is saying, the king honors and delights to love you. And he puts him on top of the horse, which in that day was a victory vitriolic uh, sign, and he, uh, Haman walks his enemy through the town saying, this is the one the king delights to esteem. And after this has happened, it says this in verse 12, it says, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Jerish, and all his friends everything that had happened. Then his wise men and his wife, Jerish, said to him, if Mordecai before whom, whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Right? You can picture this. He's embarrassed because he hasn't gotten what he so longed and labored for. He runs home to his inner circle, his wife and his, his closest wise men and, and friends, and tells them what's happened, and they say to him, the jig is up. There is no way... If the king delights to honor your enemy, how you will be honored and how your plan will happen. They're saying to him, everything you labored for is in vain. You're not going to be able to get it. Everything you desire, everything you want is an impossibility. It's a mirage. You see it on the horizon. You labor for it. You long for it. Every bit of your headspace, effort, and time for whatever you see on the horizon that promises to esteem and affirm your self-perception. The thing you labor for is just a mirage. It's how Haman feels. It's how we understand and how we finagle our own self-esteem. He walks away with despair. Uh, there's the first Rocky movie, the first of the 87 Rockies. And Rocky is this, um, this working-class citizen in Philadelphia, Sylvester Stallone, right? He's really tough. And he's a boxer. And with certain circumstances and things happening, he is poised and set up to fight the reigning heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. And so he's training and training. And as he's trained, there's this voice in his head and the voice of others that says, you're a bum, Rocky, you're a bum. And before he started training... People say to him, you're a bum, Rocky, you're a bum. And the night before the fight, he's walking all around the city, and he walks in the arena, and he's about to fight the next day, Apollo Creed, the reigning champion, and he, he looks up uh, at these big posters that are huge, ones of Apollo, uh, one is of Rocky. And he looks at his picture, and uh, he's looking and looking. And all of a sudden, the person who's putting on this fight uh, walks in the room too, this big arena. It says, Rocky, what are you doing here? And Rocky's looking at the picture of himself and he says, the picture's wrong. And the guy says, what do you mean? And Rocky says, I'm supposed to be wearing a red suit with white stripes, not a white suit with red stripes. And the guy who's putting the fight on looks at it and looks back at Rocky. 
He says, does it really matter? I'm sure you're going to give us a great show tomorrow. Right? You know what that means. He's saying, you're getting lost in the details. I'm sure you're going to be a great puppeteer for him to beat up on tomorrow. And he walks home to uh, Adrian. Adrian. He walks home to Adrian. And uh, he, he goes to her and he's dejected. And he says, uh, I'm not going to win. I'm going to lose tomorrow. And Adrian is consoling him and saying, don't say that, don't say that. He says, no, 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 I'm going to lose tomorrow. Because actually, there's no way I can win. And actually, I don't even want to win. All I want to do, he says this, he says, all I want to do is to go the distance against Creed. Because no one's gone the distance against Creed ever before. And if I go the distance against Apollo Creed, the reigning uh, heavyweight champion, then I'll know for the first time in my life I'm not a bum. The voices that keep on telling Rocky who he is motivates him to do everything. And he just wants to get out there and affirm he is actually how he views himself. The fragility of finagling esteem, of, of proving we actually are who we say we are is exhausting. And it's a mirage we chase. And it motivates us to pursue because we long to hear the words, you're not a bum. This morning, I want to ask the question, what mirage of esteem are you running toward? Giving every bit of effort and capital and headspace and consumption you have for that one mirage that promises everything, and yet you get to the end of it, and it's empty. So if we try to finagle our esteem um, by different tactics that we see in Haman, what, what's the solution? If we don't do that, it's the negative. What's the positive? And we see here uh, in the example of um, Mordecai how we are called to receive the gift of esteem. In the second point. We're called to receive this gift. Uh, there's a guy who's... Um, said to be one of the smartest men to ever be on the American soil, Jonathan Edwards. He's a theologian who lived many, many, many years ago. And one thing that he said is this. He said, to know that there is a, uh, to know that there is a great, infinite God of holiness and justice does not create humility, because either you will try to live up to that God standard and then become a self-righteous Pharisee, or you will feel like you can't live up to the standard and you'll feel crushed. That's how we see Haman. Right at the beginning of the story, he's superior. Right? He's going to live up to this self-perception. He's going to be the one that the king delights to honor. He is superior to everyone. And at the end of the story, we see he's inferior to everyone, right? He's crushed. He goes home. It says he's mourning. He's dejected. And actually, he's pursuing the esteem that we've been given already. The type of honor, the type of love, the type of esteem that we need is one that we know we can't accomplish on our own and one we know we have to be given and one we know that we do not deserve. Again, right, this is the crux of the whole entire story, this chapter. Um, up to now, it's been really bad news. After this, it's going to be really good news. 
And it changes because, the, the turning point is because the king delights to honor Mordecai. At the beginning of this chapter, Mordecai started as the subject of a genocidal edict, right? There was an edict to kill all the Jews. And he actually had his name on a 75-foot gallow. At the end of this story, Mordecai ends as the one who is riding on a horse, peerless position, with the king's robe on him, with, uh, with great honor. It changes the whole entire story because esteem from the highest person has gone to the lowest person. And it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. And, and what's important about the gift of esteem that we receive and that we don't deserve is that we never get tired and we never get, uh, it never gets old to us that we have received the gift of being thought of so highly. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, uh, those middle school years that we look back on so fondly, uh, I was in the springtime of seventh grade, I was suspended twice in two weeks for two separate events. And um, I w- it was one a huge school, and I was the youngest of six kids, um, so everyone knew my last name. My mom worked at the school, and all of a sudden, the youngest kid is suspended twice. And um, for me, during those two weeks of uh, being at home and suspended, I remember typing and um, Googling what school I'm going to go to next because I'm kicked out. All right, the die is cast on me. How in the world could they let someone stay? And I remember after the two weeks, I, I went back in to meet with the headmaster and the principal and my parents. We were all in, in the headmaster's office. And I remember, um, I remember hearing the words the principal said to me, and, and I do remember, but I don't hang my hat on the fact that she said, you're not expelled. In fact, I hang my hat and will always remember because it's tattooed into my soul why she said I wasn't expelled. When we know we don't receive, what we do, when we know we don't deserve the very thing that we get, it changes everything and it never becomes old. That how we are viewed is a gift and it's one that we live out of because it never ever gets old because it's always and always true. The type of honor that we need is one that we never get over because isn't grace wasted on people who don't think they need it? The question for you and for myself this morning is what constitutes you deserving honor or esteem? It's easy to feel superior. It's easy to feel crushed with inferiority. And yet the esteem we're given is a gift because we don't deserve it. And it's a gift because it changes everything. Tim Keller said it this way, uh, succinctly and beautifully, to know Jesus died for you humbles you. To know he was glad to die for you affirms you infinitely. And how we're viewed changes everything. How Mordecai was viewed changes everything. And that's what leads us to this last idea of being changed by esteem. The gift that we receive of esteem is ours. We don't deserve it, but but it actually changes who we are. It shapes who we are. It never gets old. How does God delight in you change you? 
in a world of competing sources and voices that say you are X, Y, or Z. You are, um, you have um, meaning and affirmation and value and esteem. In a world of competing voices that say those things, uh, the voice of God spoken over you is the only one that can deliver. And here's why. That's not just a quip saying. Because it's the only voice that's willing to sacrifice itself for you. And every other voice says, you have to sacrifice yourself for the mirage that's not even there. But to know that God actually says words of esteem for you and actually will put his money where his mouth is and send the son for you changes everything because he can deliver on the promise. And in fact, he doesn't just deliver on the promise, he meets you exactly where you are. In Luke 15, we hear this story that's well known, and uh, we'll read it in a second. Uh, it's a parable of the prodigal son. Um, and what the, the context is, is Jesus is telling people the story, uh, just how beautiful uh, the life of following him is, and how captivating it is. And he tells the story of these, this father, and he has two sons. One son is the older brother, the older son, that works and labors hard for the father. The younger son goes to the father and says, I would like my inheritance now, which is saying, you are better to me dead than alive because I want my, your stuff more than I want you. And the father gives it to him. And the son goes away and he squanders his wealth and um, he's eating pig slop. And he's eating pig slop and he thinks to himself, you know, there are people that work for my father and they eat the same slop. But maybe even there, or they give the same slop, excuse me. Maybe there, I won't have to eat the thing that I have to give to other animals. Maybe there I'll be a little more human. And so he decides, I'm going to go back to my father and beg for a job. I want to I invite you to close your eyes. Um, and you know the story probably. Uh, and you'll hear the details of it. But I want you to listen to the father's voice and the father's actions. It says in Luke 15 that the son, the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near the house and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can open your eyes. In the story of the prodigal son, the words and the actions of the father are the same to each son. One son is is coming back home, and when the father sees this, he runs after him, puts the robe on him, the robe that says, this is whom I love. Kills the fattened calf, has a party. And in the, the same time, the same father runs to a different son who is running from the father, who's angry, and he reminds him the truth of this. You're my son. Everything I have is yours. Different sons, different heart dispositions, same answer. You are worth the dignity, love, and esteem that I give you because you're my son and you're my daughter and I'm your father. You are the one I delight to honor. This morning, maybe you need to remember and know and be heard the voice of Jesus saying, you are the one I delight to honor because it's that delight that changes the whole entire story. The five chapters of descending chaos changes all because of this. It quiets the noise. All because the voice of esteem from the highest place to the lowest place changes everything. I'll end with this. There's an exercise that's been done. And it's called the four chairs. And there are four chairs. I meant to do this before the service, but I forgot. Um, There's four chairs. And in a group of people, someone is supposed to sit in the first chair. And to the whole group of people, that person says, this is who I am and why I am. This is my mission. This is why God made me. This is, I exist because of this. And the person moves from the first chair to the second chair, and this is the voice of Satan. And Satan looks at the first chair, and he says whatever he needs to say to dismantle that mission, to dismantle that person, to dismantle the why of who that person is. What's the voice that Satan says to you to dismantle why God made you? For me, the voice of Satan says, you are so stupid. You're so stupid. What's the voice for you? 
So the first voice, the mission statement. Second voice, the voice of Satan. The third chair is the chair where you sit and be silent, and the people in the group around you affirm why God made you and remind you why God made you. And then the fourth chair is one that you go to sit sit in. And the fourth chair is the voice of the Heavenly Father. And it looks past the second and past the third. And the fourth chair stares down the first chair and reminds you, you are so worth it. So this day, I want to ask you, what does the voice of the Heavenly Father in the fourth chair say to you in the first chair of who you are and why you are? The father runs to the younger brother who comes home, the prodigal son. It says he runs to him, he has compassion on him, and he embraces him. Puts the robe on him. And the beauty of King Jesus is that he was stripped of his robe, naked on the cross, so that he could give us his robe and say, I delight to honor you. You're worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we are restless because we so easily attempt to find esteem in other outlets that we plug our umbilical cords into places where we long to be affirmed and told we are someone, we are worth it. And yet, Lord, it's a mirage. And it's hard to grapple with that. And so, Lord, show us the gift of the words to you that say, you are mine, everything I have is yours. I'm going to meet you right where you are and put the robe on you because my son had the robe taken off so you could have it because he thinks so highly of you. Remind us of these truths today that I so easily forget And I don't think I'm alone. We pray, Christ, in your name.